0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring the primary scientific literature in nursing and medical research. I'm your host, Ian Lane, a clinical and population health researcher at UMass Medical School and an aspiring clinician-scientist interested in all things methods and measurement. Today's episode will feature some research and some facts from psychiatry and psychiatric nursing. Now, I think this is relevant for a variety of reasons today, not the least of which is because, well, everybody has a personality, and some of those personalities are disordered. And some of those individuals are people that you will either care for as a nurse or nurse practitioner or other provider, or they will be family members of those you will care for, or simply they will be individuals in your life. Now, it's also possible that this might be you, the person listening. And if that's the case, I don't want for this to come across as being demeaning or derogatory. And frankly, I think that the classificatory schemas that are um criteriological in nature, that are, uh, well, simply put, the diagnostic and statistical classification schemes in psychiatry are limited, and I think that they are statistically functional in a way. But I think that that limitation really has some profound effects on what we can say that we know for sure. Um, so I want to lead off with that limita- uh, that yeah limitations in a sense. I do recognize that Uh, what I will say may come across as offensive to some, and I don't intend for that to be the case by any stretch of the imagination. Um, On the other hand, I think that it's important that we manage expectations around personality, because the reality is that personality is a very stable structure across time, with a bit of an inflection point during young adulthood. So There might be some opportunity for, you know, phase shifts and changes and growths in the 13 to 30-year-old age bracket, in a sense, but just as personality is fairly stable across the lifespan, so must disorders of personality be. And now, of course, there are more and less severe forms of personality disorder, um, and you know, I, far be it for me to spend too much of the time I have with you for this episode talking about all of them. But suffice it to say, my interest in this today came up in a conversation with two separate individuals who I am close to, who for the purposes of this episode will remain unnamed. And it had to do with an individual in one of their lives who was very close to them. Who will also remain unnamed for the sake of the episode, for their protection as much as mine. Um, I, the conversation centered around change, specifically it centered around behavior change, and the question was specifically. This individual in question has narcissistic personality disorder, not borderline personality disorder, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, the narcissistic personality uh, traits or pattern of traits in this individual has served them very poorly and been very maladaptive for them across their lifespan thus far. And in this uh relationship, let's say, um, which casts a nice wide net for me, uh this person's relationship with the individuals that I have been speaking to has been a very challenging one for both of them to navigate. And so the, you know, the person who I spoke with had mentioned that they were concerned that nothing would change, but also they weren't sure how hopeful they should be. And I am not an expert in this area, Although I do find it interesting and have looked at some of the data, um, the thing that I, I have I can claim some kind of expertise in is critical analysis, and uh, analysis of the research literature from a methodological standpoint, and so that you know gives me a nice wide berth, being able to look at the literature and make a conclusion for myself, even a preliminary one as a non-expert as to what it looks like, at least superficially, by the numbers. Now, again, you know, and I don't mean to caveat and preface as much as I'm doing, but it's worth pointing out that these traits are widespread, but the disorders themselves are not necessarily. The lifetime prevalence of some of these is around or less than 5%, in a lot of cases, uh, less than 3%. And, I, you know, I, I don't think that we know enough to make really solid claims in either direction. So take this with a grain of salt. But, uh, again, I think the reason that it's important for clinicians to think about is to think about this in terms of managing expectations, and specifically managing expectations of patient outcomes and I'll get to what I think the implications of this are toward the end, but allow me to take you through my thought process as I think the quantitative analysis of this situation is at least intriguing. So where did I start after I was asked this question? I started with what is the prevalence of borderline personality disorder in the population? Now, there's two reasons why I'm using borderline personality disorder as opposed to narcissistic personality disorder, which is what the question was asked around or framed around. Partly, it's because there are, more, there are just much more clinical data on borderline than on narcissistic personality disorder, because narcissistic personality disorder patients don't go seek out treatment because they don't think anything is wrong with them. In fact, everything is right with them in their mind. Um, And that, of course, causes problems and it's maladaptive for their relationships in a variety of ways. And sometimes they can have co-occurring depressive concerns and things of that nature. Um, But there's not as uh, robust of a literature clinically that allows me to make such empirical claims about that community based on their treatment-seeking habits. On the other hand, um, BPD is also more prevalent, and only by a small margin. Um, I think that there is sufficient overlap such that it makes this uh, a nice proxy for all four of the so-called cluster B personality disorders, and those are histrionic, so dramatic, narcissistic, antisocial, and borderline. I won't get too far into the statistical clustering because I think that that's better suited for another episode. In fact, I'm writing a paper on the Criteriological Classification System for diagnostics and mental health conditions with one of the faculty members at the psychiatry department. And um, it should be an interesting paper. So I'll bring up maybe more about that or let people know when that's published. Hopefully it gets published, um, which, you know, at, just to put it out there is actually uh, attempting to present something of a counter argument to the criteriological view Um and the, and to shine a light on the limitations of the classification schema, specifically in young adults. But that's neither here nor there. The point is that so far in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual approach, or the ICD-10 approach, um, and, and I know a lot less about the ICD-10 approach. I should say the DSM approach specifically. It classifies the personality disorders into three large clusters. And there are 10 personality disorders clustered in three. Cluster A, Cluster B, and Cluster C. These are considered the mad, bad, and sad personality disorders. Uh, The mad are um, paranoid personality and the like. Uh, Schizoid personality, stuff like that. Um, The bad are considered the uh, really... um, The really... What's the word I'm looking for? Hmm. They're very difficult to treat. They're very challenging. They're challenging in a variety of ways. These are considered difficult personalities, difficult patients, difficult people. Um, and so, in any case, these are histrionic, borderline narcissistic, and antisocial. Um, And then the third is cluster C, which contains dependent personality, uh, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, so OCPD, and these are considered the SAD or more affectively uh, oriented personality disorders. When we look at the cluster C personality disorders, and I think that histrionic is going to be removed from the next iteration of the DSM, I think that there's been talk about that, though, again, that may just be me pontificating on things I've heard. Um, At least the three others, borderline, narcissistic, antisocial, there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, And so the constructs, there's some divergent or discriminant validity there, but there's a lot a lot more convergent validity, a lot more overlap in those aspects of cluster B. So partly why I'm using borderline personality here as a proxy is because of how much overlap there is between NPD and BPD. And I think that it's sufficient for our purposes. So if we think about the entire population of the United States, and let's delimit us to thinking about the United States right now, um, as I don't have worldwide prevalence data on this. And think about the total population prevalence of borderline personality disorder, whether diagnosed or diagnosable. It is about 1.6%, which I rounded up to 2%, because there are some data that indicates it, it might be a little higher than that, 3 uh, to 4%, maybe 5 some that say it's a little lower, 1% to 3 And I think you know if we just average it out we're going to approximate we're, that estimate will be approximately accurate. So two percent of three hundred and sixty million people is about seven or seven point two million. Now that's a pretty large number of affected individuals and of course everybody in this pop this subpopulation exists on a continuum of sorts where some some people's symptomatology is more severe while others is not. And of course, there's a gradient, as there always is. But they're, they've all crossed some line into dysfunction in such a way that, again, their behaviors, cognitions, motivations, and affect have been maladaptive for them in their life and in their relationships. Now, I've had to guesstimate on this next piece Of all these 7 million individuals with BPD, whether diagnosed or diagnosable, how many of them actually seek treatment? How many of them have an opportunity to grow and change in a positive direction towards something approximating more, quote-unquote, normality, whatever that means? And, you know, I don't know that this number is as high as 10%. I would like to be optimistic, but... If we think about how severe these dysregulatory syndromes of personality tend to be, uh, I I just don't think that 10% or more are really at uh, a very solid likelihood of successful, positive, adaptive behavior change. But I also don't think it's as low as 1% or 2%, although that's possible, So again, I averaged it and I said about 5%. Now, this might be off slightly, but of course there's a margin of error and you factor that into your estimate uh, as you would in any other case. So my guess, educated guess, is about 5% of people in this subpopulation of 7 million BPD patients will change or have, I should say, have the possibility of potential change. Now, there is a study It is a systematic review and meta-analysis by Kriste et al. 2018, which was published showing that there are two different forms of psychotherapeutic interventions called psychodynamic therapy or dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, which show, you know, small to moderate effect sizes for uh, positive change at a post-test immediate after intervention in borderline personality disorder specifically so if we think about what five percent of seven million looks like that's about 350 360,000 patients which is again a pretty large chunk of that population um no no excuse me <laughs> it's a small chunk of that population but it still seems like a pretty large number and so looking at this uh Suppose that they seek out this treatment, DBT, which has a pretty good evidence base behind it. My next question would be, of all the licensed practitioners that are in the United States that have the capacity to deliver DBT services appropriately, how many of them make the claim that they do DBT? Or perhaps, that they have uh, DBT services offered. I would say there are probably about 600,000 practitioners in the United States in the mental health field. There might be slightly more, slightly less, but I have a feeling it's probably not much less. It could be a little bit more, but I'm guessing about 600,000. There are like 104,000 licensed psychologists in the United States, so I'm thinking with master's level practitioners uh, included in this as well, we're looking at probably 600K. Now, I think that about half of them make some claim to being able to provide DBT services or the like. So that's about 300,000 people. Of those 300,000 people, I have to wonder, how many of these are actual DBT experts? I don't specifically mean specialists in DBT per se, but really good at delivering, or even moderately good at delivering, dialectical behavior therapy. And I think that it's, again, it's probably more than 5%, but less than 10%, so I'm going to say 8% as a guess. 8% of 300,000 practitioners is about 24, 25,000 DBT practitioners. Now, suppose that there are 24,000 therapists and they see about 18 patients uh, a week, which, you know, my best friend is a licensed marital and family therapist. She's been on the episode, on the podcast before. And um, she's a very productive therapist. Uh, and she sees, uh, she has got a pretty hefty workload, which I think suits her needs well for a variety of reasons. But what I've learned is that there are there's a wide variability in terms of the desire to work that much, but also the capacity to bring in as much business in terms of clientele for, for myriad reasons. And so um, I think a, a reasonable guess is about 18 patients on average. So some will have up to 24, 25, which is a lot for therapy, even though it doesn't seem like a lot for the nurses and the physicians and providers who are seeing you know that many patients an hour. It's a little bit of an over-exaggeration, but, um, but you get the point, but 18 patients a week at 50 minutes, its a lot of patients. So, you know, some are seeing a lot less than this. So suppose that, um, you know, only 30% of their total caseload, 30% seems small, but even someone who specializes in narcissism or borderline might only see 20 to 40% of their caseload as that, uh subpopulation while the rest may be something like anxiety or depression which are much more prevalent and and of course also some other people come in with symptoms of things like anxiety and depression but also have personality dysfunctions as well which might trend toward if not cross the line into something like BPD but suppose that the caseload of actually diagnosed BPD patients is about 30%. That's about 130,000 patients out of this group. Now, 130,000 patients, again, those are the ones being um, treatment-seeking and also seeking out the treatment of individuals with a real expertise in delivering DBT. And it's, so it's a small niche. So this is only 2%. So it's actually 1.8% of the entire BPD population in the United States. Already, this means that 98% are not, really not expected to have a, a lot of opportunity for change. Now, of those receiving intensive DBT therapy, my next question was, what's the dropout rate? And it turns out, through a paper from Rush et al., 2008, There was an attrition of 22% from intensive inpatient DBT for very, I shouldn't say very severe, for serious emotional disturbances associated with borderline personality disorder. And that could be, that could range from suicidality to, you know, threats of suicidality and self-harm and all sorts of other things. I think this is an overestimate, uh, excuse me, an, an underestimate of dropout, because in the outpatient setting, uh, the v- majority of people do not complete therapy. Um, but so, and of course, there are so many different types of therapy. How you're measuring completing, uh, completers versus attriters uh, is actually quite hard. But even still, um, suppose that they're correct and that there is a seventy-eight percent completion rate. That would make one hundred one thousand of these patients if they were receiving the treatment in the first place, which most of them are not, um, it would be about 101,000 patients who have actually sought out and received this expert DBD treatment. 101,000, divide that by the 7.2 million um, prevalence rate in the population. And with that denominator, you get 1.4% of all BPD patients with a real chance at success. So already 98.6% of individuals with BPD have no real opportunity for successful treatment. And that is, well, it's, it's really a shame, but it's also, it points to, well, it points to a lot, (laughs) um, Now, knowing that, let's just be generous and say 98% instead of 99% of BPD patients don't necessarily have the opportunity for change, I think we can safely make the assumption that they probably will not change, as, again, personality and therefore disorders of personality are very stable across time. For the very small 1% to 2% of patients who have the opportunity for change— what does that meaningful change look like well there was a study by Christe et al which i mentioned that showed that there was some magnitude of effect from dbt and psychodynamic therapy which is approximately equal to about 0.4 standard deviations change in the positive direction so if you imagine a normal bell curve so Draw the bell curve, put the median, the line, straight down the middle of that curve, right through the peak, and draw out one, two, three, four standard deviations to the right and then to the left. And then, if you were to shade the section from negative one to positive one standard deviations, 67% of all people would fall into that first standard deviation range on either side of the mean, or in this case, because it's a normal Z distribution, it would be the median, the mean, and the mode. What we would consider this, let's say that this curve, this bell curve in particular, is the emotion regulation curve. The median would constitute what I would term the, quote, normal, well-regulated individual. And obviously there's a lot of variance, so there'll be some people quite far below or above that median line. But the farther you go out, the more dysfunction arises. You could imagine that going to the left side of that curve would be more dissociation along the lines of complete social isolation avoidance and maybe even antisocial behavior. Um, Perhaps on the right side of this curve, the right tail, It might constitute something like severe attachment dysregulation behaviors. um, However you choose to define that, in my case, for this purpose, I would like to define the right-hand tail of the normal Z distribution of emotion regulation here as being dysregulated attachment, and I'm going to use that as a proxy for BPD. Suppose... You have and i would say you know we know that the the hedges g effect size found in the criste study which is a robust measure of effect size and they did a reasonably good job of making these estimates in their research study this was a meta-analysis as i mentioned i think i mentioned um let's wrap let's be very generous and round that figure to 0.5 so a half a standard deviation which is generous, of uh, positive change occurs in these patients who receive expert DBT. So you provide the therapy, say for X amount of time, and then you measure the outcome, and let's say that in the best case, all of the patients you measured changed positively back toward the mean that uh, in that normal distribution by half a standard deviation. If an individual lies beyond the, uh, the third standard deviation to the right, 99% of the entire population lies below them, closer toward... Well, not all of them are closer toward the mean. A lot of them are on the other side of the tail as well. But 99% of the people are less affectively dysregulated in terms of attachment than this individual. If they move a half a standard deviation toward the mean... That will be a positive move. It will be some positive behavior change. But this is why we need to understand the difference between statistically meaningful and practically or clinically meaningful change. Because if they move a half a standard deviation from, let's say, 3.5, they are only going to be at three standard deviations. And 99% of people are still going to be less effectively and attachment, uh, dysregulated than they are. If they're at 2.8 and they move a half a standard deviation, well, you see, you know, they're still moving closer toward the mean, which is positive in this, uh, in this sense, it's positive, right? However, they are still outside of the normally tolerated range of effective self-regulation behaviors and that's going to make it very difficult for them to maintain the relationships that they're trying to maintain and so even when there's a positive change this is I'm not saying that this is the generalizable conclusion that all people with BPD will be in this same range where at most they'll move marginally toward the mean and they won't actually get in that mean range that actually matters. Like, it is possible for some people to have BPD-like symptoms and make some change toward, you know, and fall into something more akin to a normal range. And I think that the—well, I'll get to this after. But I think that the most likely scenario here is that people with really serious borderline and cluster B personality traits— Or profiles, let's say, their patterns of behavior, motivation, cognition, and affect tend to leave them really high in that dysregulated territory, far above the two and three standard deviations past the mean. And I think many of them are near that three and fourth standard deviation. If they were to move a half a standard deviation, which sounds good on paper, in practice, it doesn't really move the needle for them at least in any meaningful way. And it's not really helpful for their relationships and their interpersonal dynamics. So, and even if somebody were to, say, move from, you know, a 3.0 standard deviation to a 2.5, there's still going to be, you know, something above 74% of people in terms of this dysregulated behavior and obviously, the the farther someone comes down this um, graph toward the median, toward or even say like one one and a half standard deviations, well then, you know, do you know that they even qualify for a BPD diagnosis? I would say it might be questionable, right? So where where you draw the line is also a difficult question, of course. Um, and I don't mean to make it seem like it's an easy thing to discern, because really. These are very complicated things, and this is not an exact science. As I mentioned earlier, the classification schemas here are, are, you know, tacitly assumed, and they're complex, um, and they're not, they're not as precise as they need to be. Um. So there's of course a margin of error here, but even if you include the margin of error, even if you integrate the assumptions that are, at best shaky um the needle may not move enough to matter in most of these individuals now a very important caveat is in a small fraction of a small proportion of this population who's receiving expert treatment in something like dbt maybe they just haven't been looked at maybe we don't have enough of a large sample size um We have, I think, thousands of patients in all of these meta-analyses that have been done, but if there are millions of BPD sufferers, perhaps it's just a matter of the population of individuals who actually would benefit in a lasting, meaningful, longitudinally uh, valid way. Perhaps they simply have not been um, sampled. That is certainly a possibility. So again, these aren't hard and fast conclusions per se. But based on the limited data we do have, like I said, as flawed as they may be, I think that the most reasonable conclusion we could make is that the data are bleak and the, the potential for robust, meaningful, and lasting behavior change and personal, personality change in this subpopulation is going to be exceptionally small. Exceptionally small. Like less than 1% small. And even then, when they look at the follow-up data after six months and beyond, even the best treatments, DBT and psychoanalytic treatments, did not really work that much beyond the control group receiving no treatment no therapy or placebo so as i say that th- this is a pretty bleak conclusion and i don't mean to leave it here for the sake of just bringing some statistics to the fore and and you know i i think there is something positive to learn from this, and I think it's twofold. First, I think that the answer to the question that was originally posed to me is, no, I don't think there's a lot of hope for meaningful lasting change, depending on how you define that. However, if the question were framed as, what do I do? I think the answer to that is, manage your expectations and understand how to cope with this individual's patterns of behaving and their patterns of motivation. Um, But I also think that that goes the other way as well. I think that the individual who has this diagnosis or these profiles and patterns of behaving, motivating, um, thinking, and feeling... I think that they need to manage their own expectations, but also I think they need to learn how to cope. And I think effective coping strategies are going to be paramount. Now, as clinicians, whether you are treating these patients or whether it just so happens that patients you are treating have, have these conditions, you can pretend that you only treat GI disorders, but you don't. You treat a patient, you treat a person, and that person has a personality profile and you have to contend with it. I think that as a clinician, you need to adopt a style of motivational interviewing that allows you to meet the patient where they're at in an appropriate dialectic and manage your expectations and learn how to cope with them and by learning how to meet them where they're at, you will not expect something inappropriate from them. You will, of course, don't allow, you know, you know behaviors that are dangerous to occur. And don't allow, it, don't, you know, be reasonable in terms of what you um, allow, but meeting them where they're at within reason allows there to be a flourishing of the dynamic, that interpersonal relationship in such a way that you know we don't completely negate the experience of the person who generally is truly suffering. And yet while we validate that, we also recognize that it's part and parcel with who they are, and we don't f- try to force things to change. Now I am not one of these scientists who believes that there is no such thing as free will. In fact, I'm I'm not staunchly against that conception, but uh I'm certainly not a determinist in my thinking about human beings per se. Whether or not I have libertarian free will ideas, um I I think maybe would be best saved for a different conversation, but um but there is a sense in which when you recognize that there are forces beyond mere human will at work within someone's psyche, and that oftentimes we are more pushed and pulled by the inner mechanical workings of our brain and our contextual circumstances than we are by that small little tendrils of our prefrontal cortex, which modulate what we think we're going to do and what we tell ourselves, then I think it sometimes is easier to look at people and have a little more empathy with what they're going through. And then when you know that this individual with borderline personality profile uh, or, or style of behaving with the world or interacting with society is really struggling and is not at the full mercy of their own willpower as much as the rest of us are not, I think it becomes easier once you learn how to meet them where they're at and to cope with those types of very disturbing behaviors. I think it's okay at that point to say, even if they don't change, I don't need to force it. And it's okay because they are who they are. And I think there's something liberating in that because the more you expect change, the more you become frustrated, the more you push for it, the harder it becomes, the more antithetical their behavior gets to that change, the less helpful you become as a clinician, and the more strained all the interpersonal dynamics become as a result of that attempt to force it. So You know, in part, this is a long, convoluted, quantitatively challenging exercise that might be for not given the limitations of the data we currently have. And yet at the same time, I think it's also partly an exercise in humility. It's an exercise in maybe self-control, but also in the ability to have a certain kind of openness and empathy for other people's struggles. And really allow for them to be who they are despite those struggles. And let that be okay within reason, within safety parameters, of course. And not try to force change, but instead become mindful and learn how to cope and accept the reality as it is. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to most of you returning next time.